Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. You gypsy. How are you? Glad to be back home, I bet. (laughs) I am very glad to be back home. I need to apologize. We're dropping this episode a little later than we originally planned. Uh, We had a good plan, and then, well, plans change, pal, as we talk about here on the show a lot. So, as a result, we're a little bit behind, but I am really, really fired up about today's topic. Halloween Havoc 1996, uh, one of the first pay-per-views that got me back hooked as a wrestling fan. And you revealed last week that, you know, of, of all the pay-per-views you did in WCW, this is probably on the short list of your very favorites. Yeah, it just, uh, Halloween Havoc was, you know, for the first few years, at least, you know, one of my favorites uh, for a lot of different reasons. And we'll get into, you know, probably all of those later on in the show. But yeah, it really was a, it was a great time to be in the business. And, you know, we were, we were on a pretty good roll back in 96. It was a lot of fun. A pretty good roll is an understatement. Uh, you're not only seeing, you know, revenues that are positive for the first time. I can't believe that's real, but you guys turned to profit in 1995 and you're going to turn way more than that in 1996. And a lot of that has to do with the success of the NWO that you guys have been riding now for a few months. Of course, we first saw Scott Hall in May. Uh, and then things start moving fairly quickly by July Hulk Hogan is in the mix. They have the NWO spray painted onto the world title in August. We do the whole fake sting thing in September, the day after, uh, that fall brawl pay-per-view. We learn that now sting is considering himself a free agent. And the following week, we see the debut of the crow sting. And now here's our next pay-per-view it's Halloween havoc, 1996. And by the way, with, with everybody being a ratings expert in the last few weeks, again, we should break down what the ratings look like back then, especially when you look at the different demographics. And, and I do want to talk about this because as you so well point out so often on the show, listeners to this show are a much, uh, a much more intelligent wrestling fan than some of the other podcasts, because we can break down the business of the professional wrestling business and specifically within these different demos. For instance, men 1834, uh, Nitro is going to get 631,000 of those compared to Raw getting 397,000. Men 3554, Nitro is going to snag 745,000 of those. Raw is only going to get 354,000. And then, you know, the, uh, the other demographics, women, 1834 raw is losing there women, 35, 54, they're losing by margin of almost double 357,000 to 184,000. And for kids, this is the first time we see that raw is more popular 384,000 children ages two to 11 compared to nitro, which is 368,000 and the same story with kids, 12 to 17. 
That too is more popular with raw, but it's very close. 389,000 to 336,000. Eric, when did you realize, Hey man, uh, we're more popular with women, which is pretty rare, but we're also more popular with adults, but they've still got us on kids because this does feel like a definite departure from the way wrestling had been presented before. How much of that do you attribute to the NWO? And, and what can you tell us about what these numbers mean from your perspective? Well, that's a lot there. Um, first of all, if you, you know, I go back to some of the earlier podcasts we did and when we talked about how Nitro was created and <clears throat> the rationale behind going live versus going to tape and that. I think which is really the beginning of all of this is, you know, after my meeting, the infamous meeting with Ted Turner when – he said, Eric, go to two hours, you know, every week head to head with Monday Night Raw. And as I've talked about many times before, one of the first things I did was kind of lock myself. I, I sequestered myself more or less uh, with a, a, a yellow legal pad and, and a pen and a, just sat in a room and made a list of all of the ways that I we could be different than the WWE, formerly WWF. I knew back in 95, in, in the spring and summer of 95, when I had that meeting with, with Ted, that there was no way that I could compete with the WWF by trying to be better than them at what they were already pretty great at, which was, you know, a, a wrestling, wrestling content uh, that was specifically geared towards a younger audience. Keep in mind, the majority of their revenue – at that time, or at least a good portion of it, I'm certainly no expert on their financial model back in 94, 95, but um, I think it's fairly obvious that a large part of their revenue came from licensing and merchandising and was very uh, kids-oriented. Uh, I knew, like I said, that I couldn't be better at them than that. I couldn't take that audience from them, but what I could do was target an audience that they were leaving behind. So the intent with Nitro from the very beginning, you know, aside from some of the obvious things on my list, which was, you know, their tape, I'll go live. They're kind of a kid show. I'll be more of an adult theme show. The WWF characters were very animated and cartoonish because they were a kid show. Um, I'll make my content more reality based and my characters and my story uh, more uh, attractive or, or, or relatable to that older demo. So, I mean, the it's not like, you know, getting that strong 18 to 34, 18 to 49 male demo was a coincidence. It was by design, not by accident. Um, and I hoped that, that we would be successful at that, and obviously we were. So it was never really a surprise to me. Um, it was gratifying, and I was glad that we we hit our target, but I, I was by no means surprised. Now, admittedly, you know, the, the change in the complexion of our audience uh, didn't happen overnight, but it, it really was by design, if that's answering your question. It's just fascinating to see, you know, how these demos break down too, because, you know, we've talked about this a lot before, you know, from a, an advertising standpoint, some demos are more desirable than others talk about the importance of men 1834 and maybe how that is more desirable than men 3554 and why well 
it's not always, you know, I mean, in today's environment, I think a women's demo is probably more attractive to advertisers than men 18 to 49. Men 18 to 49 is still the coveted demo. That's the target everybody, at least in sports entertainment, <clears throat> wants to hit. But keep in mind that demo is also easy to hit in a lot of other types of content especially sports content. So if you're an advertiser and you're targeting men 18 to 49, you have a pretty broad spectrum of content that you can place your ad dollars in and hit that target. Now, back in 90, you know, six, this is the era that we're talking about here. Sports content was fairly high. It was expensive real estate. Um, We were able to attract a lot of advertisers that might not, be able to afford to spend in traditional sports, whether it be the NBA, Major League Baseball, or NFL, but still wanted to hit that target. So we, a lot of that, a lot of that second tier advertising, for example, we wouldn't get, you know, automotive, we wouldn't get Ford, Chevy, you know, Jeep, and that kind of, those kinds of dollars were very difficult for us to attract because those were premium products that were, you know, had, had the revenue or, or the resources to purchase top flight content, whether it be NFL, NBA, whatever. But we're able to attract that secondary tier of advertisers, the Valvolines, for example, and other consumer products that were buying more mass. They were they were paying for eyeballs as opposed to, uh, for example, you know, an advertiser may may say, look, we're we're looking for content that delivers men 35 and up that have at least four years of college that have at least two vehicles that have been recently married that expect to have kids in the next 12 months. I mean, it, it becomes that much of a science for advertisers sometimes, but there are other advertisers. I'm going to use Valvoline again, just as an example, because they were one of our advertisers where, yeah, they're looking for men who drive vehicles, but that's a much broader target. The fact that it's a broader target means that it has a lower CPM or cost per thousand, which is what CPM stands for. So you're not getting the premium dollar, but you're able to attract more of it. So you're making your money up in volume, um, if that makes sense. So that 18 to 49 male demo that we were now targeting or we were targeting back in 1996 opened up a whole new world of advertisers for us. Prior to that, WCW typically the advertising we were getting were considered at the time, I don't know what they're called now, but they were considered at the time to be opportunistic buyers. Um, they would buy eyeballs. They didn't care who, who owned those eyeballs, male, female, kids, adults. It didn't really matter. Men, women, they could care less as long as they were eyeballs and they were breathing. And that's great because, you know, there's advertisers out there that spend that money, but instead of, let's say a, I'm just picking numbers out of, thin air, instead of a, a rate card that was $55 per thousand, when you were attracting opportunistic buyers, and it, here's, you know, an opportunistic buyer would be something like M&M Mars. They're just buying eyeballs, really. Uh, instead of a $55 CPM, you may be looking at a $4 CPM. So you'd have a lot of those commercials, but they weren't really generating that much revenue. So what was happening, I guess, in a long-winded, circuitous kind of a way, of explaining this, what was happening is our demos improved and we were getting stronger in that 18 to 49 demo. Keep in mind the WWE or WWF at the time was underserving that demo. So we didn't really have any competition there. So as time went on and we started growing that demo, we were able to not only attract more advertisers that were interested in that demo, but we were attracting more advertisers who were spending more money. 
you get kind of a double double whammy, you know, effect there in terms of your bottom line revenue. All right, let's keep it going and let's talk about the actual uh 1996 era specifically this show of course halloween havoc 96 goes down on october 27th from the mgm grand garden arena it draws 224,660 dollars at the gate that's 8,390 tickets being sold uh there's approximately 10,000 folks in the building but the building seats around 14,000 but it breaks the company's live gate record um, which was set earlier this year for 193 grand and change in Buffalo of all places. And this is the first Halloween havoc in Las Vegas. Uh, that's worth mentioning because Halloween havoc had sort of bounced around, but it's going to be here. 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000 chat me up from a business perspective. Uh, why was MGM grand the right partner? Why was Vegas the right town? Well, I can't take any credit for that one. You know, I, I always try to give credit where credit is due. In an industry, we're pretty much a, you've, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, but success have many success has many fathers, and uh, failure is always an orphan. Yeah. Uh, and in the and in, in this industry in particular, you know, I hear so often uh, about people taking credit for things they really had nothing to do with. And this is a situation where I had nothing to do with the MGM Grand. That was all Zane Bresloff. Zane was, um, Zane, let's put it this way. Zane spent a lot of time in Las Vegas. Uh, he liked to, uh, he liked to wager on football and he had a lot of great relationships and, and Vegas. And Zane came to me and said, Hey, I think we're ready. We could, we could pull off the MGM Grand Arena. You know, he sensed the momentum and could see not sensed it. He could see the momentum in black and white. We were having, and and Zane convinced me to uh, fly out to Vegas with him and meet the management at MGM Grant. And it was really all Zane Breslov. I was happy to do it. You know, I've always, as I've talked about on the show so many times, always believed that the success of the pay-per-view model back at this period of time you know, when we were doing 12 of them a year, was that each one of them had their own very distinct, unique personalities. By personality, I mean location, theme, types of matches, that type of thing. Uh, and Vegas was a great opportunity for us to do that. And certainly the MGM Grand was one of those high-profile arenas, not nearly as high-profile as Madison Square Garden, but, you know, in the ballpark at least, which was another big consideration for me. Uh, as we're growing the brand, um, knowing that we would have a hard time getting into Madison Square Garden, for example, because of the relationship they had with WWF, I knew that you know we had to establish ourselves in some of the bigger, more recognizable, branded venues around the country. And the MGM Grand was a great opportunity for us to do that as well. So aside from the, you know, the revenue potential and the fact that Vegas is a great great environment for entertainment obviously you've got a huge turnover of people that come in and out of vegas every weekend uh in addition to a pretty strong local market uh so from a financial point of view it made a lot of sense from a long-term branding perspective uh it made a lot of sense and it just helped us get to where we wanted to be as far as having a destination that was very unique to this specific pay-per-view well it's a uh it's a great look it's a great feel it's a great vibe but I've heard over the years that it could be challenging selling tickets. I mean, this is a great gate record for you guys, 224,000. Are you at all disappointed when everything else you're running is selling out and it's super hot that when you come to Vegas, even though it is a financial success to the point that it's a record for a live gate experience, 
it's only 8,300 tickets in a 14,000 seat building. Does that hard on the ego? Do you read that as well? It's Vegas. There's a lot of entertainment choices or how do you reconcile that in your mind? Well, it's hard to be disappointed with a company record first and foremost. So, you know, on, on one hand I was, you know, we were all happy with the gate. Keep in mind in 96, Six. This was we were at a, a growth trajectory at this point, so every time we went out the door and did a little better than we did the night before, it was cause for a little bit of a celebration. Uh, so I, I can't say that any of us were disappointed uh, in the gate of two hundred twenty plus thousand dollars or eight thousand tickets sold. At the same time, we did recognize, and that's one of the risks that you run when you play a market like Las Vegas or Los Angeles, for that matter. Uh, you, you look at both markets and there's always something big going on and it's hard to stand out in the crowd, so to speak. Uh, we knew that one of the risks, and there's always a risk in everything that you do. Uh, one of the risks that we ran is, you know, people come to Las Vegas for a lot of reasons. You get a segment of the, the, the tourists that come into Vegas on a given weekend, usually from LA and, you know, Phoenix and, you know, surrounding kind of drivable markets and they're basically coming in to gamble and play and party um, they're not coming in for shows they're not coming in for entertainment this is this is a generality okay this isn't hard fast research but i think in general just anecdotally from being in vegas you know uh, quite a bit over the years you know your weekend traffic that drives in are coming in to party or gamble for the most part, you've got another segment of your audience uh, or, or, or your base of consumers that are coming in for conventions. Now, the tricky part of that is that most people that come in for convention business are either leaving on Sunday or just getting in on Sunday for the following weeks. So in other words, if you were there Wednesday through Friday, for example, or Tuesday through Friday for a convention, yeah, Saturday you might relax a little bit, have a cocktail or two and head out or Sunday morning. And then you have a whole new, you know, influx of population that's arriving on Sunday because they've got business in Las Vegas, the convention business during the course of the week. So you're uh, Sunday you're in a little bit of that transition state with regard to the the influx of you know new potential customers that are coming in on a Sunday. So it's all and, and then to top it off as you pointed out, you've got all kinds of great national or international acts that are performing up and down the strip. Uh, so yeah, we knew it was going to be tough, but I think we, we, I remember meeting with the MGM grand folks and, you know, they had great marketing teams within the MGM grand. They knew how to move tickets. They knew the best way to help us, uh, market our, our pay-per-view. And I had a lot of confidence in them, uh, as far as being able to attract, a, attract the local market. So to answer your question, no, I was not at all disappointed. We were thrilled. The event, you know, came off really, really well. It was very well received. We had a blast and we made a lot of money. So it's kind of hard to be pissed off about that. It is. And one of the things I'm, I'm curious about when we're talking about how, okay, we're not sold out, uh, but we still set a record you know, just two plus two, right? Basic math means you guys had an increase in your ticket price here. Obviously this is something that you would have consulted with Zane about, but how do you guys sort of determine this is a fair price for Des Moines, but we can get away with a little more in Las Vegas. Well, that was really Zane uh, working 
closely with management at the MGM. They, again, they know their market better than we did. So that was really Zane and the management at MGM that helped us determine that. Uh, I wasn't going to try to outsmart people that promoted events in Las Vegas, you know, 52 weeks a year and come in over the top of them and suggest that we should raise a price or, or lower a price. I, I relied um, heavily on, on their better judgment. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on behind the scenes with some of the talent, specifically Sting. As we talked about, this is really the beginning of Crow Sting, which we saw uh, just a week after Fall Brawl, the prior pay-per-view. But around this time, he's actually filming some movie uh, action with uh, Jim Carrey for the movie Liar Liar. Uh, how did this come about to the best of your recollection? That's a pretty big deal for you know, one of your talent to be involved in a Jim Carrey movie in 1996. That's when Carrey was at the top of his game. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure how Steve got connected, you know, with the producers of that movie. I know Steve back at that time was very interested in acting and I supported him in that. Uh, actually I executive produced, which means I funded a movie called an independent film called, uh, I think it was called, uh, Oh gosh men who commit lies or something like that. It was, it was a very, very low budget project, but he was working, Sting was working with an acting coach out of Atlanta who was fairly well connected in Hollywood. He was a writer producer and, uh, I am pretty certain the movie came about as a result of that. And obviously I was very supportive of that. I don't think it's really important, but the name of the movie you're looking for, I think is called the real reason men commit crimes. So, ah, that's it. Crimes, lies, whatever. I knew there was, I knew there was, I knew there was men in something nefarious involved. I just wasn't sure what it was. (laughs) Let's talk about, uh, the news at the time it's written. JJ Dillon started working in the office on Tuesday. Bischoff had a pep talk before the September 23rd nitro with the wrestlers saying he wanted to beat McMahon by 1.5 again. And he told the wrestlers that Dillon would be coming in and apologize to Kevin Sullivan saying Dylan would be his assistant because he's heard Dylan is a good organizer and said that he was apologizing because it was the first chance he had gotten to tell Sullivan about this. Ironically, this Dylan deal was done a long time ago because one major WCW figure was bragging back in late April about how Dylan was coming in and Dylan had his house in Connecticut for sale for several months, then quit with no notice when the house closed. Now we've talked about this quite a bit in the past and You've always sort of tiptoed around the fact that JJ has a son who had special needs and he had a young wife at the time and he was under a lot of financial duress when Vince whacked away half of the quote unquote wrestling part of the office salary and he had committed himself to a much greater than normal Connecticut mortgage. And this was of course before SaveWithConrad.com was a thing. So uh, he just put the house up for sale and eventually when he got a buyer on the house, uh, he was not long for that world. He felt like Vince had sort of broken his word to him. And he came to you, I believe on the recommendation of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, but I am fascinated by this. Well, well, he's going to be Kevin Sullivan's assistant, but we're not going to tell Kevin Sullivan until we hold a public meeting about it. I'm sure you take issue with the way that was written. So I'll let you respond. Well, it, it just factually incorrect is so much of this crap is, there was no long-term discussions with JJ. I, I, not even, I didn't even know who JJ was up until probably the week before I hired him. Um, when Ke- and it was Kevin Nash 
It wasn't Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. It was Kevin Nash came to me, and it was uh, now my understanding, and I don't know that this is true or not true because number one, twenty some odd years has gone by, and number two, I'm relaying second in probably third hand information. So, with that caveat, um, the way Kevin approached me was that that JJ had been let go, not that he had quit, or not that his feelings were hurt because Vince McMahon broke his word or any of that. What's true? I don't know. I wasn't there, so I'm not going to kind of die on that hill defending anything uh but kevin came to me and said you know look we're growing quick you know you need somebody that's you know decent and and, and can handle talent relations that you know the boys know and understand and you know can handle that job jj dylan just got let go at wwe we need somebody you know I'm not going to get into the backstory about JJ's situation. It's none of my business, but, you know, I'm, it was empathetic. You know, I understood. And I've, I've said this before in the show. You know, this industry is is a very um, – it's a, it's a great industry, but people who have spent their lives in it when their careers are cut short for whatever reason um, have a hard time applying what they've learned within the sports entertainment business to other forms of work. You know, it's hard to take your, you know, you could have a great track record in this industry. And and once you're out of it, you know, you're kind of starting over. And I've always felt, I don't know why, a little bit of an obligation whenever possible. Not that it's always possible or it's always appropriate, but whenever it's possible and it makes sense to try to um, not only take advantage of people that have a lot more experience. And it was positioned to me that J.J. did. Um, but also to, you know, give an opportunity to somebody who is, who had spent so much time in, in the business. So I, uh, you know, one, because I trusted Kevin's judgment and number two, because it was my nature, um, I hired JJ and it was a very, very, I mean, a matter, it was a matter of days, not a matter of months or weeks as whoever suggested that was the case, um, printed it. It was not months. Uh, I didn't have. Uh, I think I had one conversation with JJ over the phone. He flew in probably the next day or day after, and she was hired pretty much on the spot. So to suggest that this was kind of a protracted, you know, months long discussion, negotiation, and JJ was positioning behind the scenes to make this move is, you know, nonsense, uh, which just wasn't the case. But the whole Kevin Sullivan, he's going to be your assistant thing. No, 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 because Kevin Sullivan wasn't in talent relations. So that I don't know where Kevin Sullivan's assistant even came from. JJ was hired for a specific job that had nothing really to do with, with Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan, you know, Terry Taylor uh, arguably had more to do with talent relations than Kevin Sullivan did. So you know, e- even that on its surface is kind of like a disconnect. It feels like, you know, it's, it's- Pretty common knowledge, I guess, that back in the day in the Jim Crockett promotions era, uh, Dusty was the head booker and, and JJ was his assistant. JJ would help organize his notes. And if Dusty had written out, you know, cause they were running A and B towns. If he had written out two cards, sometimes you would see a tag team or whatever on both shows, obviously logistically not possible. So JJ would sort of keep him on the straight and narrow that way. So when this report gets to Meltzer from whatever sort of back channel source existed, maybe it was somebody from that era, or maybe it was just Dave stepping out and assuming, well, that's what he did for dusty. That may be what they're doing for him here. But, uh, you know, I hate that we're talking about it, but it's this era. So we gotta, 
Um, Bret Hart is a topic uh, that everybody's talking about in October of 96 because he's not signed. Uh, he left the WWF after WrestleMania 12. He's going to take a bit of a break and he's going to come back and do one uh, Saudi tour. But now it's like, well, is he coming here? Is he going to WCW? And WCW is uh, written about a lot in the newsletters at the time because the WWF has made a ridiculous offer. It's a 20 year offer. And it's uh, a long-term employment offer, but for less money than according to Brett and the observer, what WCW was offering. And it gets down to the last minute to the point where even when they start to tease on their programming, that Brett Hart is going to be on raw and he's got a major announcement about his future. Obviously the implication that he's on raw means they've already got a deal done, but Meltzer would say even the day of that taping, uh, you were still trying to close a deal with Brett and you have gone on record as saying that while you guys had an enjoyable conversation, none of that ever happened. Do you want to address any of this? Uh, there's a report here that you're even faxing an offer to San Jose for him to review right before he goes on the air. Yeah. I'm, look, we've covered this ad nauseum and we did a whole episode on the Bret Hart thing. And I don't want to kind of revisit that uh, other than to say that as is usually the case, Meltzer was flat out wrong. And I've, I, you know, I, I ran into Brett, uh, where was, I? I was over in the UK. The last time I was over in the UK, Brett and I kind of bumped into each other and I'm just kind of tired of the, the back and burying and the negativity, uh, that sometimes, you know, and I'm guilty of it. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit it. Uh, I try not to instigate it, but the minute somebody else says I'm ready to jump in with both feet, but, you know, I, I, I had a, a conversation with Brad. And it was a short conversation. I said, look, you know, all that shit's it's water under the bridge. I'm tired of rehashing it. I'm tired of reliving it. And I'm just not going to say anything that's going to be disrespectful of Bret Hart any longer. It's my personal choice. He didn't ask me to do it. It was just something that, you know, as I'm in the hotel and I see everybody together and I'm there with Rick and, you know, a bunch of other guys and, and we're all sitting around having a great time that I realized it's just life is too fucking short, you know, to keep rehashing all this stuff. You know, Brett, Brett was an amazing talent that accomplished a lot of great things. I have nothing but respect for him. And as far as revisiting a lot of the stuff that we've already visited, if people really want to, you know, look into it, what my thoughts were, they can go back and find the Brett Hart episode um here in our in our library but I'd, I'd rather not kind of go back into that i will say dave Meltzer was full of shit that i have no problem saying but i mean that's <laughs> that's not an that's not unusual i mean i think anybody that you know follows him and you know really is keeping track of how often he's accurate and how often he isn't i don't need to keep you know beating that drum most people recognize it but um with regard to brett you know, I know what was written. I know what Dave Meltzer printed. I know what's been out there in the in the ether for twenty some odd years, and I'm just tired of talking about it. Real quick before we move on for good from from Dave Meltzer for today, because I know uh, it's early in the morning. Um, when did you guys, or when do you think it sort of became this weird blood feud with you and Dave? Is it is it more prominent than ever because of our podcast here, or has this always sort of been around? But I mean, people who are keeping up with the current product know that he just occasionally every few weeks just takes a big stab at you, whether it's through his newsletter or through a daily update or through an audio, he's ready to just throw a dagger here or there. 
but a lot of, you know, Dave Meltzer, uh, super fans, myself included say, well, maybe some of that was instigated by 83 weeks of the podcast, but you've been around for all of this. What say you? Well, I've always had a very, um, I don't even know the correct word. I've always had a bizarre relationship with the newsletters and even with Dave, you know, I mean, when I came up in the business in 87, 88, 89, of course, working for the Ganyas, they absolutely hated dirt sheets because they were, you know, they were what they were, you know, and, and they, they were very early in their evolution. <laughs> um, and of course, Vern hated them and and Greg hated them. And I, I guess by default, then so did I. You know, because they were detrimental and writing negative things about the company that I worked for and the people that I had respect for. So I, I automatically kind of fell by virtue of the fact that I was in the office, so to speak. I automatically kind of fell on the side of the anti-dirt sheet um, crowd. And then as I, you know, you know, and then you know, after I left Vern, I didn't really pay any attention to them. I had no reason to. Uh, even when I was in WCW, I didn't pay attention to them. I kind of recognized them for what they were. My impression of dirt sheets and the people that wrote them was pretty solidified by that point. And it was just, you know, garbage and rumor mongering and third and fourth hand information from people who had agendas. And, uh, you know, I, I recognized it for what it was and it didn't bother me one way or the other. Now that changed. <clears throat> As I got into management in, at WCW and became a vice president and you know, moved up the ladder, when I would be reading this bullshit uh, in a newsletter about my own company that actually had an adverse impact on the business or had an adverse impact or negative impact on, on talent uh, or I, I would, you know, there was a guy at Turner Broadcasting by the name of Jeff Carr who was, <clears throat> I think he was a pro program director at or director of programming, whatever you want to call it, at TBS at the time. Well, nobody else in Turner Broadcasting knew anything about wrestling, and the only thing Jeff Carr knew about wrestling is what he read in a dirt sheet, which was 50% bullshit, and the rest of it made up half the time. You know, there was, there was and I'll, I'll take that back, there was enough fact and real information in a lot of the dirt sheets that were read at the time that it gave credibility to the other 90% of it, which was bullshit fiction and rumor mongering and it was like a bunch of old ladies sitting around you know a beauty salon getting their hair done listening to you know each other tell their stories and gossiping and then somebody putting it into a newsletter and then someone else down the street picking it up and reading it as fact and that used to frustrate the hell out of me and that's probably when i got more vocal about it it started calling them out uh you know i, I tried it both ways i tried to be open uh, with Dave and with other people, I tried to make myself available uh, so that at least if they were going to write something, they at least had an open door policy. They could pick up a phone and call me. And that worked for a little while. And then it didn't, you know, and then they went right back, in my opinion, at least from my perspective, they went right back to just writing bullshit. And that p probably pissed me off more than anything, because it's like, wait a minute, you guys bitch about the fact that you didn't really have any access. Now you've got access and you're still out writing bullshit. That is just nonsense. Like the, the story in the setup, you know, we just talked about with J.J. Dillon, like it was some kind of months long protracted secret 
you know, discussions between JJ and I, and I didn't have enough respect for Kevin Sullivan to bring him in the loop beforehand. And I told him that, you know, the day of, or the day after I hired him, that's nonsense. It's an, it's a cute little narrative for someone that wants to paint me in a negative light or paint the situation in the negative light, but it's not true. There's no truth to it. it. It was exactly the opposite of what was printed. And it was those types of things that probably exacerbated my dis- dislike, distrust, and just general uh, strong, I won't call it hatred. I don't hate anybody, but just the way I, I, the reason why I felt so strongly about dirt sheets. And I think, you know, fast forward to here we are today. And I think, yeah, 83 weeks, you know, the premise of a lot of your questions, and it has to be that way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bitching about it. You know, I'm grateful for it um, because it it provides kind of a foundation for us to talk about what was going on back during this period of time. So, I'm, again, just want to make sure people don't misunderstand me and think I'm pissing and moaning about it because I'm not. But as so often is the case on this show, and I'm sure with – Bruce Pritchard, it's much the same. I don't know how, you know, where Tony shakes out on this stuff, but, um, you know, when you ask us a question that is so, uh, you know, or sorry, ask us to comment on something that was so obviously either completely fabricated or misrepresented uh, in the dirt sheets at the time, I react to it. I call it out for exactly what it is. And I think if there's a reason why Dave is, you know, sitting back taking little pot shots, first of all, it's because he's a pussy. And that's all he's capable of doing. And secondly, um, you know, I'm sure his credibility is threatened. And, you know, much like I do when I when I hear about something that he said or done, it kind of gets under your skin and you want to fire back. I get it. But I don't really don't give a shit. Well, what we all give a shit about is uh, the news that Ric Flair is going to be on the shelf for the rest of the year with a torn rotator cuff. Uh, This has been a, a nagging injury for Flair at this point for quite a while. Uh, he's going to go get it fixed. And, uh, at first it's supposed to happen in early October in Birmingham, but, uh, it's written that he wants to get a second opinion. And when he gets that second opinion, it's, uh, not the best news. Uh, he had just had the, uh, the facelift surgery done after war games. Uh, but it's become very apparent that, Hey, he's going to be on the shelf longer than we thought. So on the October 7th edition of Nitro, you get the NWO beating him down with a uh, baseball bat, and that explains the absence. This is uh, really the beginning of what will be some problems with Ric Flair, Um, but it really starts with this extended time on the shelf. He negotiated this contract, of course, that he's under here uh, when WCW was running less shows and wasn't nearly as in the spotlight as they're about to be. And things are changing. This is the NWO WCW. What was your relationship like with Flair here when he's got the torn rotator cuff and he's going to be off TV? Uh, How would you categorize your relationship at this point in October of 96? I think it was still pretty good. You know, I mean, Rick, Rick and I grew pretty close in 94 uh, with, you know, and it's funny, you know, I, I see Ashley almost every week or Charlotte now almost every week. And it's just, as a matter of fact, when we were in Los Angeles uh, for the premiere of um, SmackDown on Fox, uh, my daughter, who lives in Los Angeles, Montana, um, she came to the hotel after the show. She and a couple of people that she works with came to the event. And then after the event, they met me at the hotel and we had dinner and a couple of drinks. And of course, you know, when I say of course, but Rick was Rick was at the bar having dinner and uh, so was Wendy and a couple other people that worked with us at WWE and Ashley Charlotte was there. 
Now, my daughter, Montana, and Ashley used to, they were almost the same age. And when they were little kids, they'd hang out together at Disney MGM, you know, because we were there sometimes for, you know, four or five, six or seven days at a time. And our kids, you know, Rick's kids, my kids would all play together and hang out at the pool and go for rides. And, you know, we did a lot of things together as, as a family. And it was the first time that my daughter, Montana, had seen um, Ashley, Charlotte. So Montana walked up to her and said, hey, you know, my, and of course, Charlotte looked at my daughter like, okay, who's this fan? <laughs> you know, she probably just wanted to be left alone. She was with her, her significant other at the time. And she probably just wanted to be left alone until my daughter said, hey, Ashley, it's me, Montana. It was like old, it was like old home week. So, you know, when you asked me what was my relationship with Rick like back in the day, you know, 94, 95 was pretty good. You know, Rick was instrumental and in, in, in largely instrumental in us being able to get Hogan to jump to WCW and, and jump on board. Um, creatively, Rick and I were working together. Socially, we had quite a bit of fun together. But, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody, and you should probably be able to attest to this even more than I can. Rick has always been a little volatile, you know, <laughs> emotionally. And, you know, anybody that really knows Rick, you know, it will probably agree with that and, and lovingly joke about it. But it's true. Nonetheless, Rick, Rick is a Rick is a roller coaster ride. So exactly where I stood with Rick in October of 96, I hesitate to try to guess because one minute things would be going great and five minutes later they weren't. <laughs> I think everything was still pretty good in in the early part of 90 or this part of 96 in October of 96 but you know I could be proven to be wrong. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um Jeff Jarrett because and Jarrett's on this card we're going to talk about it you know his match with the giant but in this era there's a sort of a flirtation on on television with is he a horseman or not. He certainly going to be hanging out with the horseman and aligning himself with some of those members. And even years later, there's a debate, you know, if you ask Arnie, you ask Rick, Hey, was Jeff Jarrett really a horseman? What say you? Well, I, you know, I, I guess I don't know what constitutes a, a formal card carrying legendary <laughs> horseman member. I don't know if you got a secret little card or passed to a strip club or, you know, I don't know what the bennies were. <laughs> um, you know, there was, you know, he's, he was in the orbit, you know, and I think there was a lot of discussion. You know, I think Jeff, you know, one of the reasons that I, I hired Jeff was when it came to his in-ring work, I mean, Jeff, and I, I'll say this to this day, I think Jeff technically, you know, especially back at this period of time, Jeff was great. He knew how to tell a story. He really got psychology, still does to this day. Um, his character wasn't, in my opinion, the strongest, but in terms of being able to deliver a great match and not only deliver a great match, but have a great match with a, a, a variety of different styles and sizes of, of talent and, and experience levels of talent, Jeff was one of the best. So he, he was a great addition to the roster. I don't know that the audience ever looked at Jeff as somebody, you know, and all you have to do is go back and look at this pay-per-view. You know, Jeff came out in his, that white spandex Chippendales kind of gimmick with the long flowing blonde hair. You know, he just didn't have that look of a horseman. And I don't think the audience ever recognized him as, as someone who could be a part of that original group with that credibility. But, you know, he, he flirted with it for quite a while. And so did the audience. And so did we. 
You know, I don't know how to, uh, I know you just did a whole little thing about Meltzer and I don't know how to present this liner or this tidbit, this nugget right here. Uh, so here we go. Meltzer reported Eric Bischoff did make a hot phone call to the hotel room where Hogan and company were hanging out regarding Jerry Sags bending over and spreading his cheeks. What, what, what the fuck is this? Any memory? So, uh, <laughs> n- none whatsoever. None, none, none abs- absolutely. I mean, now, if you ask me, if you ask me, do you think it's possible that Jerry Sags would do something like that? I'd be the first one to raise my hand. And go, oh, hell yeah. I'd be surprised if he didn't. But that wasn't the question. The question was Eric Bischoff made a hot phone call to Hogan's room. How the fuck would Dave Meltzer know that I made a phone call to Hogan's room? Well, unless he was, unless he was in the room with me. Here's what we need to know. Uh, was Jerry Sags using manscaped.com? I don't know, brother. I wasn't there. I kind of doubt it because manscaped.com wasn't around at the time, but, uh, and, and I didn't witness the alleged incident, but I find it fascinating that Dave Meltzer reported that I picked up the phone and made a hot call to Hulk Hogan's room because Jerry Sags was spreading his ass. Does that not kind of just contextualize everything that is Dave Meltzer. <laughs> uh, here's some Wade Keller news for you. Bischoff held a meeting at a Monday night show in front of all the wrestlers to address the house show schedule. He said next year, there are 72 house shows scheduled, not counting television tapings and pay-per-views. And he said there might be a few more or a few less, but that's in general, what everyone should expect. And he pointed towards the door and says, if anybody has a problem with that schedule, they can leave right now. And many of the wrestlers signed their deals when there were fewer house shows and many have been complaining about the schedule lately and Bischoff wanted to hold this meeting to put an end to it. He said they plan to work hard in 97 and to improve the quality of the house shows. He said in general, he has been embarrassed to run house shows because fans accept, expect a Monday Nitro atmosphere and end up with a Bush league atmosphere with intro music playing over boom boxes. And he says that weekend in Tupelo, there was a major problem with game ops and some wrestlers actually refused to go out without their intro music because they were so frustrated with the minor league atmosphere. And this is actually something that we've heard Scott Hall complain about in years past on shoot interviews where they're playing the wrong music for the wrong guys. And, uh, it was just a, a disconnect. It was apparent that house shows were not a priority. So you're holding this meeting here allegedly to, uh, correct all that. What do you remember about this meeting? I don't remember the meeting specifically, um, you know, like I'm sure you won't remember meetings that y- you have this week, 20 years from now, no matter how important they may be. But I do believe I had that meeting and I do believe that the issue was addressed. It, it would make sense during this period of time because it was an issue. Uh, generally, I do remember the disconnect between the quality of what we presented on Nitro and then what we presented at our live events and the disparity between the two was really frustrating for me. It was embarrassing. It was an issue. It was a problem. Um, and it's one that I think, you know, uh, even today can exist. You know, it's, it's kind of the challenge when the, the production value of your shows that people watch on television are so high. I mean, they're unbelievably high and the, then when they go to an arena with an expectation to experience something similar to what they watch on television and when they get to the arena it's not there that's a problem 
And it was even more of a problem for us back in 96 because WCW, when I took over WCW, the house show business was atrocious. It was, it was, if you weren't embarrassed at WCW's house show product, then you, then you weren't drawing breath. It was that bad. It was just horrible. And there was a point in time when I went to Bill Shaw and Bob Dew. And this is one of the reasons why Bob Dew and I ended up parting company. Um, when I said, look, the only way we're going to enhance this business and grow this business and improve this business is to shut it down, meaning the house show side of the equation. We have to put whatever resources we have, we have to put into the television product until the television product gets strong enough and the audience is um, is interested enough in our product that they'll actually buy a ticket to go see it live. And I was met with a ton of resistance, not only from Bob Dew, whose job it was to, was to run the live event side of the business, and a guy, another guy by the name of Don Sandifer, which was his kind of running buddy, um, for me to come in and suggest to, to Turner Management that we actually shut down the house show business was pretty much me suggesting that we fire them. Because we certainly didn't need Don Sandifer. Bob Dew was really well entrenched within the Turner organization. <clears throat> so Bob wasn't worried about losing his job. But he was probably facing the reality that 75% of his daily duties were no longer required. Because that's how much of his time he spent on the house show side of the business. Uh, but I knew back then, you know, and we're talking 93, 94 is the era that I'm specifically referring to here when instead of doing 180 or 220 house shows a year that we're losing money hand over fist, I cut it down to next to nothing. And we put all of our resources into television, which is where Nitro came from. And now we're talking about 96. Now, by this point, once we had built up the television product, ratings were growing, enthusiasm for the brand was growing. We had a significant pool of talent um, that was new and fresh to the WCW audience, at least. Um, it was time to open the, the gates back up again and start promoting those house shows. Where I neglected to prepare adequately was making sure that the framework for promoting those live events was up to par. It wasn't. It was basically kind of going out to the garage and you know firing up that old lawnmower that you hadn't used in four or five years and deciding to go out and you know open up a commercial lawn care business with it. Um, our infrastructure as it related to house shows was would never was good to begin with and certainly couldn't keep up with the pace that we were operating at by 1996. So it was embarrassing. I can imagine that I probably did have that meeting. I don't recall, by the way, now there, there were, there were times later on 97, 98, when we really started increasing house shows that there was a conflict with talent. I really don't think there was in 96. If there was, it was isolated. Because we still weren't running that many house shows. Most of the guys that uh, came in under the new reduced contracts still had 150 to 180 days in those agreements. And the 72 house shows in the 52 weeks of television still fell, fell within that framework. So I don't think there was – there was a, a kind of a, a broad base of dissatisfaction with the schedule, as was reported. There may be, like I said, there may have been one or two or three isolated incidents, um, but it wasn't across the boards, at least not 96. So we talked about Bret Hart's contract. We talked about Ric Flair. Let's talk about another talent behind the scenes. Of course, we're talking about Randy Savage, who's in the main event of Halloween Havoc 96. But Meltzer says 
his contract is up in mid-November. So if he wins the title at Havoc, uh, then all those accounts were a ruse planted by WCW. But if not, he would expect that they're correct. Uh, there's been too much dumped into Randy Savage at this point, especially when you consider that where he goes, so goes the Slim Jim account. And supposedly they've put another $250,000 in the Halloween Havoc. And I think a lot of our listeners remember the way you guys wrapped the uh, the ring posts with the Slim uh, Slim Jim um, decoration, I guess, to make them look like Slim Jims. And maybe there's a little bit of fuel to this fire when you see that Wade Keller's reporting that Randy Savage has been making lots of uh, media appearances, like on uh, Newsport Talk with Chet Kopic, and he's really putting over strongly Vince McMahon, Shawn Michaels, and the WWF. He even says the Nacho Man skits were smart marketing play. So there's lots of questions, lots of rumor and innuendo about Savage here in October of 96. What can you tell us about his contract status at the time? I know his contract was up um, prior to, excuse me, I know his contract was up subsequent to Halloween Havoc. I don't know if it was going to be up in November. My recollection is it probably wasn't going to be up until sometime later in the year or even the first part of the following year. But there was, you know, there was a discussion. Uh, and I could be wrong. I don't remember Randy's contract off the top of my head. But um, I, it wasn't a big issue for us. There was, you know, Randy was a guy that liked to stir things up in the media. Uh, I enjoyed it as well. I like keeping people on their toes and speculating. I've always believed that if you could get the audience asking themselves what's going to happen, um, you're halfway home. It's when people aren't talking about your business that you generally have a pretty big problem. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that Randy and I, you know, co-conspired to go out and stir all of this shit up. But if Randy was doing it, it certainly didn't bother me at the time. I will say this. There was zero, and I mean less than zero. I don't know how you can get less than zero, but if you can, there was less than zero concern on my part about Randy going back to the WWF. So whether Randy was out stirring that stuff up just is a fun way to keep the audience guessing and wondering or whether in his mind that would somehow put pressure on me, which I can't believe because Randy and I talked so so much about this kind of thing back in at that time. Keep in mind that Randy left WWF because Vince McMahon thought he was done, that he had nothing left to give in the ring and didn't want him to wrestle anymore. He wanted a, wanted younger younger stars, and Randy resented that. And, and Randy, you know, Randy had, I, I will say this, Randy had no desire to go back to the WWF, especially in 96, as things were rocking and rolling with the amount of money that, you know, guys were making in WCW versus the amount of money that guys weren't making in WWF. I mean, when you think about it, no matter whether, if, if you're a fan of, you know, any one dirt sheet or not, look at the situation. You know, if you want to ask yourself what's probably true, what's probably not true, look at the situation. You know, where was WWF in 1996 in terms of how guys were getting paid? They were cutting people right and left. You know, they were reducing their, their staff because they had to. You know, there were rumors. I don't know that they're true or not. There were rumors that they were literally taking the water coolers out of the building because they couldn't afford to service them any longer. The, the, the financial outlook in WWF, in 1996 was pretty fucking bleak from a talent's perspective. Contrast that to what the situation was like in WCW and ask yourself, would a guy like Randy Savage actually want to go back there? 
to to a place where it, it, it was made clear to him that his time was over and he was no longer fit to be in the ring. He no longer had a role in the ring. He could be an announcer, but that was it. A guy like Randy Savage would want to go back to that and and give up the amount of money that he was ba- making and the limited schedule that he had in WCW, which compared even with 150 or 160 dates in his contract, assuming that he worked every one of them, that was still a much lighter schedule than he would have had in WWF for significantly less money. So when you hear these rumors or these reports of what was going on behind the scenes back in the day, just ask yourself, step back and look at the situation and go, does that even make a little bit of sense? In most cases, it doesn't. And I think this is one of those cases. Now, that's not to say that Randy and I didn't have conversations about his contract. Randy was a good businessman. I, again, I don't think his contract was up in November, and I could be wrong about that. But let's just say, for example, that his contract well, – well, I'm, I'm going to throw in the towel on that one. Let's say it was. It was November. His contract was up. Randy and I started have a, having conversations probably weeks before Halloween Havoc about renewing his deal. I wanted to have those conversations because as a business person, I wanted to know, number one, uh, what my budget was going to be for the following year. And and Randy was a significant part of that budget. So from a planning perspective, I had to know where my resources were going, number one. Number two, the Slim Jim relationship was extremely important to us. Not only was it close to a million dollars a year in revenue, that this walked through the door along with Randy Savage, it was also a great vehicle for us to point to other potential sponsors and say, look what we've done for Slim Jim. We can do the same thing for you. You know, you mentioned, you know, wrapping the ring post at Halloween Havoc. That's called signage, you know, in the business. And, and you know, we, we had a ton of Slim Jim signage in that particular pay-per-view. That's the type of thing a potential sponsor loves to see because it allows them to break through through the commercial clutter that they sometimes find themselves in on a television show where a sponsor gets a commercial spot, well, that's great unless people aren't watching that commercial spot. But when you give someone you know, signage or title sponsorship within the arena itself, those images and that signage is – in the viewer's face, you know, from beginning to end. So for us to be able to integrate the the Slim Jim product in as many different ways as we did was uh, it allowed us to go to other potential sponsors and say, look, see what we did for them? We can do the same thing for you. So for that reason alone, in addition to the million dollars, close to a million dollars a year that it generated for us, that relationship was very important. So obviously, I wanted to get far ahead of that. So our conversations about my, when I say our, my conversations with Randy about his renewal or his next contract started probably thirty or forty-five days prior to Halloween Havoc. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the signage, the idea of wrapping these ring posts to look like Slim Jims. Really, a stroke of genius. Is there somebody you could give a tip of the hat to for that idea? Uh, no single individual. Uh, part of that, part of that, probably came from Slim Jim themselves. They had a great, you know, marketing team that were very, they were very smart and and aggressive in a good way. That were looking for different ways to integrate our own team, uh, you know, and wrapping a ring post, you know, with signage isn't necessarily you know brain surgery, but uh, we were looking for every opportunity, whether it was the graphics or signage or. Uh, you know, commercial spots or any number of ways that we could possibly get the product out there. Hell, we would even go out in between commercial breaks and 
throw Slim Jims out to the audience. You know, there was a time in the very beginning of the relationship with Slim Jim when Randy first came on board that Randy would come to the ring and snap into a Slim Jim as part of his interest. So there was any number of different things that we have, you know, we tried over the course of the relationship. But I, 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 if I had to guess that was it probably really was generated from the Slim Jim marketing team to us. And then we executed on it. Let's talk about sting. Uh, it's written by Wade Keller that stings contract is going to be coming due, uh, fairly soon. And, uh, it's written that he meets with you in California, uh, quote, no other details are known, but it should end speculation that sting might be jumping to the WWF. Certainly if Sting signed, he must've gotten a sweet deal for renewing early since he clearly could have set himself up for a bidding war just as Bret Hart did. Uh, but specifically Wade would say after a Minneapolis house show, Sting and Bischoff talk for hours in the hotel bar and then later alone in the lobby. What do you remember about Sting's contractual status? And did you feel like, you know, after the whole fake Sting thing, that that was the time to renew him? You had the vision for what this could be, or how did all that play out to the best of your recollection? You know, Sting and I always had a very, very honest and solid relationship. There was never any gamesmanship on his part or mine um, with regard to his contract or his status with the company or his position within the company. It was always 100% transparent and honest. Uh, we just did business. You know, he never tried to give me the impression that he was contemplating leaving. He was never the type of guy who would rely on an agent or a manager to try to squeeze more money out of Turner. You know, Sting at the time, you know, he had young kids. He was living in Atlanta. He had a business there. He was making great money. He he liked his work. Um, he, he, he loved the company. He, he had a great relationship with a lot of the people that worked there. So Sting was never a guy who was difficult to deal with. Uh, on the flip side of that, I never tried to take advantage of that either. I paid paid Sting pretty well, um, and in in a way that he felt was fair and I could afford. So, any and also Sting and I were pretty good friends at that time. So you know, while we may have had a conversation at a bar or met in a lobby of a hotel or hung out in a hotel for hours, it wasn't doesn't necessarily mean it was all business. You know, there was a there was a period in time when Sting and his his former wife came out to Wyoming and they were gonna buy property right next to Lori and I. You know, and and they came out to Wyoming, we hung out together and had a great, great time. So the relationship between Steve Borden and I was really solid at this point uh whatever con whatever contract conversations were taking place were very amicable and non-eventful let's keep it moving here and talk about the uh, time warner merger because there is uh, and i know we've talked about this a lot but Meltzer would say nobody really knows how the time warner merger will affect wcw but there has been talk about two clashes being moved from tbs to hbo but the time warner side wasn't crazy about the idea of pro wrestling on hbo I fucking love the idea of this. Do you remember it ever even being bandied about? Hey, what if, what if it was on HBO? Because that feels like that could have been super cool. That sounds like something someone like Gary Jester may have fantasized about in a conversation with Meltzer and then Meltzer reported as fact. Um, there was never, ever, ever a syllable, a consonant, a vowel of conversation with anybody at HBO about having the clash of the champions on HBO. It, it sounds more like somebody's wet dream fantasy, but no, 
that was never true. Let's talk about roadblock very briefly here. I mentioned this because he debuted on the October 21st nitro. You may remember this is the 400 pound six foot seven giant that Lex Luger racks him and uh, gets a win here. The reason I bring this up, it's not his first time in a wrestling ring, even though it is his WCW debut, like 10 years prior, the WWF is doing a television taping in Rochester, New York. He wants to be a pro wrestler, he tries to meet Hulk Hogan at the gym that day. Hogan blows him off. So that night Hogan's supposed to wrestle the one man gang. And this giant roadblock before he's in the business jumps in the ring and takes down the one man gang and starts pounding on gang and gang's manager starts swinging the cane at him. I mean, this is insanity, but this is essentially the first time roadblock had anything to do with wrestling and fast forward 10 years later, he's putting over Lex Luger on nitro. Uh, did you ever hear this story about roadblock and, and is this ever on your radar at all? Because this has to be the weirdest origin story of a wrestler ever i have never heard that story until just now and it's just awesome <laughs> buddy lee parker has dropped his leprechaun gimmick he's now jack boot uh which uh yeah i, I don't know man the, the leprechaun gimmick not doing it not doing much for me how about you nah never has never will um we should also Finally, get around to this pay-per-view. Halloween Havoc, Jim Powers, and Pat Tanaka are in the opening dark match. Eric, what's your favorite Jim Powers match? Mm, I think it probably would go back to 1993. It was in the summer of 1993. <laughs> I'm not sure his opponent. Probably won about 12 minutes and 45 seconds. There's some great, great chain wrestling in the middle of the match. Finish was explosive. Had a double false finish. Great, great match. Never forget it. Yeah, go out of your way to see that Jim Powers match from the summer of 93. Uh, next up, we've got Psychosis and Juventud Guerrero. They're going to defeat Damien and Halloween when uh, Guerrero pins Damien after giving him a Frankensteiner. While Damien was on top of Psychosis' shoulders, and uh, it's written here, apparently those four tore the house down, and according to one report, it was even better than the match that followed that opened the pay-per-view. Uh, pretty fun dark match here. I mean, the first one sort of is what it is, but... On the West Coast, you've probably got more of a Hispanic fan base and four luchadors tearing the house down. That's a great way to get the, the crowd excited and into it, huh? It really was a great way to do it. And it's, you know, one of the things that we established in the WCW early on that worked for a long period of time is to start our pay-per-views as hot as we possibly could. And the cruiserweights, especially the luchadors, really helped make that possible and, and, and really allowed us for a couple of years to establish that precedent. I know lots of people are going to have different opinions to this, but I don't care. Send me your hate tweets. Ah, hey, hey, it's Conrad. The first match on this pay-per-view is not only the best match on this show, and you should go out of your way to see it. I think you could argue it's the best opening match on any pay-per-view the entire year. It's Dean Malenko pinning Rey Mysterio Jr. in 18 minutes and 32 seconds to capture the Cruiserweight title. Not only do you have two Hall of Fame talents here, you have them at the peak of their career and they have plenty of time with this championship on the line. 18 minutes, 32 seconds. It gets four and a quarter stars. I think it's better than that. I think it's a tremendous match. Go back, go out of your way. If you're going to watch one old match this week, watch the first match on Halloween Havoc, Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio. You saw this for the first time in a long time this week, Eric. What'd you think? You know, as great as that Jim Powers match was in 1993, 12 minutes and 18 seconds or whatever was this match really stood heads and shoulders above it. 
<laughs> I, I, kidding aside, I when I first started watching it, the first thing I noticed is my opinion. This is just my opinion. I don't really give a fuck what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter to me at this stage of my life. I think this might have been the peak of Ray Mysterio's career. Yeah, that's hard. To I don't. Argue. I, I just don't think. Now he got. He, you know, he became more well known, and and became a much bigger. You know, part of the industry. There's no question about that. But in terms of his abilities in the ring, damn, it was amazing. And same thing is true for Dean Malenko. This match was so mind-bogglingly good and fun to watch. It Go to www.network.com. It's worth the $9.95 a month or whatever it is, if for no other reason than to have this match and be able to look at it. Because if you want to see cruiserweight action when it was at its peak if you want to see two people who really probably as much as anybody defined the cruiserweight division and what it could be and should be during this era it was dean malenko and ray mysterio in this particular match that's not to say there weren't other great ones you just talked about the the dark match that went on you know we'll see chris jericho later on in the show chris was very important in that whole process and evolution of the cruiserweight division as well but this match i think is heads and shoulders above just about anything i've seen in a long long time i mean you got to go out of your way to see it such a great i mean i don't want to spoil any of the hot spots but they're pulling out a lot of stuff but everything they did together just looks so believable a great clash of styles and uh, this is going to be you know sort of um I don't know. I guess it's my second favorite Rey Mysterio Halloween Havoc match. The only time, I mean, as great as this match is, the only way I've seen one better is a year later at Halloween Havoc with Eddie Guerrero, just arguably one of the best matches of 1997. Go out of your way to see that one. Can't recommend it enough. The next one though, I didn't love nearly as much. It's Eddie Guerrero and Diamond Dallas Page. And this was before either guy had really sort of hit their stride. DDP is still not the cool DDP. We're still a few months away from that, but he's almost there. Uh, but this is over the battle bowl ring, which I don't know. I just never got into And Eddie Guerrero, a once in a lifetime talent. I still don't think he's really found his voice here yet. Just yet either. It's a good match, I guess two and a half stars, but I don't think either one of these guys are really where they need to be. They had 13 minutes and 41 seconds before diamond Dallas page gets the win. What'd you think? I thought the match, I agree with you hundred um, percent in terms of neither one of the guys had reached their, their peak at that point and found themselves. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in watching that match, and I thought the first 10 minutes of the match was pretty good um, given where DDP and Eddie were in their respective careers at that point. But man, that should have been a 10 minute match because the last three minutes of it, they just gassed. I mean, honestly, the last minute and a half of that match, I was going, my God, was one of them hurt? I mean, it's it's like if you go back and watch the finish, it's just like Eddie essentially just threw in the towel. He just quit. It, um, here's it, what was it, written about it. Page hit a diamond cutter out of nowhere, and even announcer Tony Schiavone called it as if Guerrero had blocked the impact of the move, making the finish seem even more anticlimactic when Guerrero didn't kick out. And Guerrero was down in the ring for a long time as a shoot after the match. So perhaps... Perhaps Guerrero, you know, got his bell wrong. I don't know, but it is, it is sort of a weird, uh, finish to the match, but it is, uh, you know, to DDP's point, really furthering, getting over the diamond cutter, the diamond cutter in 97 is going to become arguably the hottest move in wrestling. And it would continue in 98 and 99, but on one channel, we got Steve Austin stunning everybody on the other channel, 
if diamond Dallas page hits the diamond cutter, that's it. And that's the story that's told here at the end, even though it does come off a little weird. Yeah. And you know, looking at that, I looked very closely, um, at the way page set up for the diamond cutter and it, it may have, it may have hurt Eddie. I mean, that may, it may have rung his bell and that's a possibility because Eddie wasn't the type of guy to sandbag at all. Um, and, but it just, it looked that way, you know, and watching it, if you go back and watch the last 45 seconds of that match, less minute, minute, even go back a minute and a half because they did gas. I mean, they, they both got, got tired page more than, than Eddie, but, and it started getting sloppy as a result of that. But that finish, it was just weird. Um, anticlimactic is being very kind. Yeah. That's, uh, not the best match on the card, but next up is a really weird one. Uh, it's the giant and Jeff Jarrett. And the story here is the giant has stolen the United States championship from the then champion, Ric Flair. And now he's claiming to be the United States champ. And Jeff Jarrett is going to be here to defend the horseman. Uh, but what's fascinating about that is there's still this debate all these years later is he or isn't he a horseman? What's interesting about this to me is there's a promo that Jarrett does before the match where he says, essentially, Giant, you may beat my ass, but I'll guarantee you won't choke slam me. And I don't know why that's still a, still a funny promo to me all these years later, where you're just acknowledging, okay, I'm going to lose, but I'm not going to let you hit your finish. It's amazing that that was a, a real promo in 1996. Yeah. Talk about weird. That was, <laughs> what the hell? Nine minutes, 56 seconds. It's going to come down to a DQ. Ric Flair does uh, uh, a bit of an interference job here. Meltzer would say Jarrett did a really good job carrying giant. who's difficult to pull a good match out of finish sees Jeff, get the figure four on the floor, but giant grabs Jarrett by the throat and breaks it. And, uh, he's about to choke slam him when flair, who was at ringside hits a low blow and the referee calls for the DQ. And of course, after the match, all the horsemen get in the ring and the giant walks out next up, we get a promo that there's going to be uh world war three coming back next month. And unbelievably, they're going to have a rematch. What did you like about this that you wanted to see more of it? <laughs> I wanted to see if Giant could chokeslam Jeff Jarrett. I love you for playing along there. Next up, we've got Six and Chris Jericho. Of course, Six is Sean Waltman. Jericho is still relatively new to the company, so he is just indescript babyface number 17 here. Just, yeah, come on, baby. Not quite the performer that we've seen now. Uh, and six is still doing his great stuff. This was a really good match. Three and a quarter stars. They got nine minutes, and 49 seconds. But of course, six is the star here. The NWO is the story. Six gets the win after the spin heel kick. I, I dig this one, but I think the story here is we're trying to position Nick Patrick as a bad guy referee, even though we just saw him in the prior match call for a DQ, there was nobody wearing the black and white NWO colors. So we want to cement here. As Jericho keeps getting near falls and Patrick is taking forever to get in a position and then does deliberately slow counts. But then whenever six would hit the kick, Patrick gets down immediately delivers a fast count. We're starting to see the, uh, the heel referee become a real thing. What can you tell us about this? Well, I mean, you, you summarize it really well. This was the beginning of the Nick Patrick story and his association with the NWO. The story was really clear, but go back to the match. And again, I, you know, I put over, you know, X-Pac, Sean Waltman so many times on the show, and I'll probably continue to do it. Chris Jericho as well. You know, this was early uh, in in Chris's relationship with WCW. And I again, I think, you know, Chris has gone on to become 
you know, an amazing performer. You know, he's reinvented him. He reinvents himself once every six or eight months, it seems, and does so so effectively. Um, but in terms of in ring, in in his overall abilities, God, he's just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. I mean, he, he probably got better as time went on, and certainly his experience in WWE made him a much better performer, uh, you know, a more well-rounded performer. But just physically, his timing, his speed, his execution, the crispness of everything, and you still saw the beginnings of, you know, the, you know, the 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 master, if you will, of of you know his character. Um, you saw that starting to emerge with Chris Jericho. So it was, it was a fun match to watch, much like the, the Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio match. I would really suggest that people go back and, and you know, after you get done watching Dean Malenko and, and Eddie, excuse me, Rey Mysterio, fast forward if you must and check this one out because it was both, you know, two of the very best at that time, Sean Waltman and Chris Jericho. I think, it you know, if not at the top of their game, damn near close to it. I, uh, I'm excited for us to talk about the next one, because this is something that we just recently talked about with Arn Anderson on Arn's new podcast. It's Lex Luger and Arn Anderson. And the backstory here you may remember is at war games. These guys were on the same side of things, at the prior pay-per-view, but Lex Luger winds up submitting, uh, when fake sting and Hulk Hogan are double teaming him. So when he submits that costs WCW, the match Anderson, not too happy about Luger being a quitter. So he decides to attack Lex with a steel chair on an episode of Nitro. And now here we are. But famously, this is where Arn really realized, uh, I have a real problem. And it happened in the gym where he talks about losing a grip on the weights before the guys go 12 minutes and 22 seconds. This is really Arn Anderson's last high profile match. Um, what do you remember about the match? And is it weird for you to sort of watch it back knowing this is it for Aaron Anderson. And even he didn't know that at the time. Yeah, it is weird. You know, and it's, it's always, there's always a, a strange sense of melancholy. And, you know, when you go back and you watch these pay-per-views from 20 some odd years ago and you reflect on, you know, where, where certain people are today. I mean, look at, we just got to talking about Chris Jericho and, you know, look at the, the amazing journey that Chris has been on, you know, since October, 1996. And it's fascinating to look at it from that point of view. And then, you know, you see a match with Eddie Guerrero, who's no longer with us. And so often, unfortunately, there's so many of these people that we watch that are that are no longer with us. And it's like I said, it's a weird kind of melancholy um, feeling. But, of course, you, you come across matches like this, as you just pointed out. Really, Arnie Anderson's one of his last matches, his last high profile matches, you put it. And a, and a guy like Arn, who I've you know, I've always had a ton of respect for. We may not have always, you know, been beer drinking buddies, but um, there's probably no one who in terms of in-ring nobody that i've had more respect for uh and there has been times when we were you know pretty tight um but knowing you know what he was going knowing now you know we didn't really know it then but knowing now what he was going through and you know what this match probably meant to him and the fears and concerns that he must have had i I don't know i haven't listened to his podcast on this subject but had to be uh, had to be a tough tough time for Arn, and now to go back and look at it twenty some odd years later, I'd be curious to hear what his thoughts are on it, and I'd love to sit down with him over a cocktail one time and talk about that. Check it out if you haven't already. Uh, just look for Arn A R N anywhere you enjoy podcasts. We should mention that in the story they're trying to tell here, Luger is going to hit Arn Anderson three times 
with a chair in the back to sort of get revenge from the angle on nitro. Then he puts him up in the rack. And of course, Arn Anderson submits, but after the match to set up the next angle, Anderson is going to do a stretcher job here. And they announced that Jeff Jarrett and Ric Flair are going with him. And the reason they're making that clear is because we've got Steve McMichael and Chris Benoit, the other half of the horseman taking on Ming and barbarian. They're going to go nine minutes and 23 seconds before the horseman get the nod. Meltzer would say no heat at all for this match, but there is more to this. At some point we see uh, McMichael hit Ming with a briefcase. Benoit pins Ming after the headbutt off the top rope. But after the match, it's when things get a little weird. Barbarian hits McMichael with the briefcase. Ming gives him a pile driver. Kevin Sullivan, Conan, and Big Bubba, who are all at ringside for previous matches, hit the ring. Now it's five on one on Benoit. And he holds him off for a bit before ultimately they just destroy him. And as Mongo is recovering, Sullivan clocks him again with the briefcase. And they do a spot where Sullivan is yelling at woman that no matter what, he's the man. Uh, this is weird to say the least. Yeah, it really is weird. I knew you were going to ask me to dig into this. And I, I think there's a little bit of personal business taking place here that really wasn't part of the show or part of the original script for the show. I'm not saying that Kevin went into the business for himself, but I think a lot of what we saw, this is where art unfortunately imitated life and life was imitating art to the point where the lines got so irrevocably blurred that things got out of control. But yeah, I think there was a, there's a lot of real life shit going on in that, in that ring at this point. When did you realize I mean, is this something you just saw really for the first time? I mean, because you're not watching this on a monitor backstage. And if you are, you probably don't have the headsets on. Are you aware of, I mean, when is it on your radar? Like, wait a minute, what the fuck? Well, uh, we got to what the fuck before this. I mean, there was a whole lot of what the fuck going on before this match uh, and this point in time. But, you know, this was the first time that I saw this. Or at least that I remember seeing it. I don't know. Again, yeah, twenty some odd years ago. I've seen a little bit of wrestling between now and then, but it it became apparent to me when I went back and watched this pay per view, knowing now what we all know that we didn't know completely then. It was even a little more odd. Well, not odd. Fucking bizarre uh, to watch it back. Uh, next up, we've got Hall and Nash taking on the Harlem Heat. Of course, the Outsiders, the original two members of the NWO. They're a tag team at this point. And uh, yeah, Meltzer Duggan, he says, better than what you'd expect, given who was in the ring. There's a fight in the crowd, which diverts some attention. There are some chants for Razor, Razor and Diesel. Eventually, you see Booker T's the Harlem hangover on Hall. Nash comes in to make the save. Robert Parker winds up in the ring as well. Nash glares at Parker, snatches the cane, breaks the cane over Booker T and puts Hall on top for the pin three and a quarter stars. And now Hall and Nash, your tag champs seems like a no brainer, I guess, for the NWA to start or NWO rather to start controlling some of the gold. What'd you think of the match? I really enjoyed it. I think it's probably one of my favorite Harlem heat matches. It was a great match. Probably one of my favorite Harlem Heat matches as well. I'd love, and I guess it's just me. It's the nostalgia thing kicking in, you know. Um, I love seeing Robert Parker. He was just hilarious to watch. But most of all, I love Sherry. God, I love watching Sherry. At the end when, you know, Scott Hall grabs her and lays a big wet one on her and she goes, 
ballistic and she was such an amazing character. I know we've talked about it on the show before, but man, this was back when managers meant something. And of all the managers that meant something, I think that Sherry Martell might've meant the most. She was just awesome. Really, really good stuff here. Uh, especially if you're an old school, you know, Hall and Nash fan or a Harlem heat fan, this is probably some of their best work here. Next up is our world title. It's our main event. We've got Hulk Hogan defending the title against Randy Savage. As we've talked about, this is in Las Vegas. About a year and a half earlier, you guys were doing a uh, Nitro and a Clash of the Champions from Las Vegas. And on Nitro, the night before the Clash, Savage would beat Flair to win the world title. And after the match, Savage and Hulk are doing an interview, and Savage calls Hulk out for acting like Hulk won the match when Savage did. And Savage tells Hulk they're going to have to have a match, but they're going to do it in Vegas. So it took a year and a half to do it, but that is exactly what winds up happening here at Halloween Havoc 96. And this is sort of fascinating because both of these guys have been around for a bit. You know, Savage came in at the end of 94, so here we are two years later, and this is their first singles match against each other. It had been teased a few times beforehand, but this is where it's going to actually take place. Is this something that was promised to Slim Jim's? since, Hey, he's our guy. We're going to put him in the main event and let him challenge for the world title. Or how did this come together? That this is the first time they face each other. No, there was no promise made to the sponsor at all. Um, that was never part of the discussions with Slim Jim. They never really had any voice or desire to have a voice in the creative other than the way their product was presented, you know, on screen and with signage and entitlement, things that we've already talked about. Uh, I think it was just a matter of, you know, with Hulk and, and Savage, it was just a matter of, you know, the right time. Everybody knew it was going to happen. Everybody wanted it to happen. When I say everybody, including Hulk and Randy, but it was just a question of waiting until the story was right, as opposed to just, throwing it out there and doing it for the sake of doing it um, with the, you know, evolution of the NWO and NWO versus WCW and the history with Hulk and Randy. It just, all of it just kind of dovetailed and it was creatively a bit of a perfect storm in terms of this particular matchup. It was uh, it's a fun build and uh, the actual match itself is kind of interesting. I guess we should talk about the obvious here. Um, Hulk Hogan wears a wig to the ring. <laughs> and I forgot I, all about that. I assume that this is uh, the hairpiece you wore at uh, Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain, and they have a fun, fun little bit with the uh, with the wig <laughs> in the crowd. And Savage pulls the wig off and stuffs it in his mouth, and then he puts the wig and the glasses on, and really hilarious stuff before they actually get to actually get to the match. This, uh, this wig thing, it's pretty cool that they're cool with having fun with this because a lot of guys would not have been able to have fun with this. No, and that's, and I remember it was Hulk's idea. And I remember when he said, Hey, well, you know, I got this wig and, you know, cause they were, they put it on him for the movie, as you pointed out, and it looked real. I mean, when he had that damn thing on, it wasn't a wig. It was a hairpiece that was glued to the top of his head. And when he had that hairpiece on it, I mean, from two feet away, you couldn't tell. And he said, wow, I, I could see the spot, you know, at the right time in the match when Randy, you know, grabs me by the hair and punches me. And he's left holding my airpiece. And I thought, damn, that is, that's mighty big of you, Hulk. <laughs> but, you know, it was self-deprecating, but it worked. It was fun. It was a great spot in a match and highly, highly entertaining. It's always the spot I'll point to when people say that 
uh, Hogan was holding people back and Hogan took himself too seriously or whatever the different criticisms are of Hulk Hogan. Not a lot of big stars like this will be willing to sort of poke fun at themselves in this way. And, and I thought it came off really well as a result. Um, Liz is a big part of this. You know, she was a big part at WrestleMania five. So it's natural that we're going to have the big rematch here all these years later that, uh, she's going to be a big part. And that is definitely the case. We see Ted DiBiase here trying to uh, help Hulk Hogan and giving him an object, but Liz is going to get the object wrestled away. And of course we know eventually we're going to see, uh, the giant come out and giant's going to give him a choke slam, put Hogan on top. Patrick, Nick Patrick magically recovers, counts the pin and giant pours ice water on Hogan to revive him. And uh, it only gets one star. Probably not nearly the heat that there was at WrestleMania five, but there was always magic with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage for the world title, whether it was 1989 or 1996, uh, it still resonated with fans just the same. Did it not? It did. You know, these two guys had such an uh, amazing chemistry, you know, when it was right, it was really right. And when it was bad, it was really bad. You know, their, their personal relationship kind of evolved over time. Uh, but when you got these two guys together, when they, they they would feed off of each other, they would get each other excited. And, and Hulk and, and Randy, despite you know the the volatile nature of the relationship from time to time, you know they always circled back, were always tight. And when you got them together, when you hit that magic moment where they were both on the same page, uh, the, the shit was always fun. You know the the way that they fed off of each other, and you know again, you know not to wax too melancholy here, but you know in watching these matches, those are some of the times that I remember. You know back to, you know some of the highlights of my just on a, on a personal level, not financially, not business wise, not house shows, you know TV ratings or anything, but just my personal remembrances and and high spots in the industry. You know Hulk and Randy when they were when they were on the same page was it was a fun time to be around both of them. And we're going to dig what happened after the match. Of course, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are saying, well, that's the end of the match. What are we still talking about? We're talking about the debut. So Hulk Hogan gets splashed with water. And what do you know? Bagpipe music hits. Piper comes out and he's here to confront Hulk Hogan. He's going to pull a house mic out of his jacket. He's going to tell uh, the giant, hey, go take a break. And Hogan starts to backpedal saying that, you know, when I said I made wrestling, when I said I owned wrestling and controlled wrestling, well, now that I really think about it, you and I were running neck to neck, neck and neck. And then Piper cuts a hell of a promo saying that I'm just as big of an icon as you are. And, uh, I don't know, man, this is a big, big jump. And you, you did a great job keeping it a secret. This is the internet was still a thing in 1996, the rumors, the innuendo, the, the message boards, they're all out there. But nobody was reporting this. When did you secure the deal? Uh, how tough was it to keep it quiet? What did you think of the execution of this promo? Because the stage is now set for your main event for Starcade. Yeah, the the deal, we probably executed the deal about 30 days in advance. Uh, maybe less, a little less than that. I, I met uh, Roddy initially through a, a mutual friend, a guy by the name of Mitch Ackerman. Mitch was an executive producer at Disney in L.A., a huge wrestling fan, and that's how I met Roddy. I, I actually flew out to L.A. and hung out at Mitch's house one Saturday morning, and, and Roddy came into town, and we met there at uh, Mitch's home just to kind of keep everything quiet. We knew that you know if we met 
that out in public or, you know, at an arena or anything like that where you typically would have a meeting, it would leak out. And both of us knew if we were able to do a deal, we wanted to keep it quiet. We wanted the element of surprise, which, you know, works uh, more often than not. The deal was pretty easy to do with Roddy. He wasn't a tough guy to negotiate with. He was fair. He was honest. He knew what his value was, but he didn't try to uh, he didn't try to gouge us either. So the deal came together fairly quickly, and it was easy to keep it quiet because you know Roddy was old school in that regard. You know he he didn't you know feel the need to pick up the phone and talk to a dirt sheet writer and you know give his side of the story before the. story. Or even unfolded. He 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 was a, he was a man of his word, and he said he would keep it quiet, and he did, and, and I did as well. Now there were a handful of people that knew. Obviously, Hulk knew, uh, and kept it quiet as well. Randy knew, and there were a handful of others who knew, but it was pretty easy to keep it quiet. Well, I'm I'm just fascinated that it finally happened. I mean, even Meltzer would say over the past seven years there have been numerous attempts uh, on the WCW side to sign Piper, all of which resulted in Piper returning to the WWF. To the point it had almost become an inside joke in the industry that Piper would negotiate with WCW just to get the word out to the WWF, which would then bring him back. And Piper, when he comes over 45 years old, Roddy has said that he went to WCW for the money, duh. Uh, and, and Piper's deal, according to Meltzer, it's written here. He's going to work four or five wrestling matches per year and make about 15 interview appearances throughout the year. And the prime focus of the contract is that Turner was going to be developing some syndicated television shows. And, um, they have an idea for Roddy Piper as a bounty hunter or a policeman type role. What do you remember about the way the deal was structured and, and whether or not there were aspirations of Piper doing some TV stuff for Turner as well? You know, that was a part of the deal. There, there was discussion, you know, Roddy, uh, obviously had some acting experience and some su- success in, in movies before coming to WCW. That's really where Roddy wanted to go. Roddy recognized that Turner broadcasting, not only with TBS and TNT, but also with new line cinema, uh, was a great place to, to, to land and the opportunities would be there. So there was some first look type, uh, language, meaning if he had an idea, he would bring it to us before we he shop it anywhere else and vice versa. There was a commitment on Turner's part to try no commitment, uh, um, in the industry, they call it a put commitment, meaning if I say to you, Conrad, um, I guarantee you three put commitments a year at $250,000 a year, that's suggesting that I'm either going to offer you three movies or in lieu of the three movies I'm going to offer you, I'm going to pay. That, that, that was not the kind of commitment that we had with Roddy. It was more or less a an, an agreement to agree to try to work together to create those opportunities opportunities without any financial entanglement. So that was for the most part, that was the nature of that portion of the relationship. Let's talk also talk about, you know, the, the creative aspect of this show, you know, as we're sort of wrapping up Halloween Havoc 96, is this creatively, you know, a highlight for you? I mean, I know you said, you know, this was more important to you personally, this show was, but I mean, to be able to have a big surprise like Roddy Piper and keep it a secret and putting the tag titles on the outsiders and such a great match with the Ray Mysterio, Dean Malenko. I mean, this is just an all time high creatively as well. Probably. Right. I, you know, I think it was certainly one of the better shows creatively. When you look at all those individual elements and then add them up together, I think it would be hard to argue that it wasn't one of the better uh, shows that we put on creatively. But I think for me personally, it was more, I, I think it, it was more of a strategic success. 
than anything else. It was more of a brand building success than anything else. It was like another big step forward in terms of the way that the WCW brand was perceived, not only amongst fans, which was obviously important, but amongst, you know, the business to business community, the people that are in business with people to to do business, whether it be the pay-per-view companies, potential advertisers, venues, um, all of the above, license licensees, uh, it it helped put WCW on a much higher pedestal than heretofore we've been able to to enjoy. So, for me, when I look back at it creatively, yes, it was great. Probably one of the better pay per views I was associated with at the time overall uh, across the boards. But it was much more of a strategic success, and that's probably why I was more excited about it than anything at the point. It's just fascinating to me that this is. Uh... This is where we are because this show was so well received by me and all of my wrestling fans at the time, but the, um, the buy rate is down from the prior month. I mean, war games, fall brawl, the, the month prior did, did more revenue on pay-per-view. And really, when you look at year over year, it's almost identical. The number of buys that you would get in 95 compared to 96. So there's not huge growth, but gosh, in a vacuum, this is such a great show. I'd love to have your feedback. See what you thought of Halloween Havoc 96. It's worth mentioning the next day, Nitro does a 3.6, Raw does a 2. Uh, so no matter what you think of the uh, uh, the creative here, it's still better than whatever the WWF is presenting. And we hope you're digging what we're presenting here on 83 Weeks. I had a fun time revisiting a very special show, Halloween Havoc 96. Next week, we're going to do a little bit of a departure. We're going to go back and do a personality profile and with uh, quite the hot topic, Mr. Scott Hall himself. So look forward to that next Monday on the 28th. We'll be back with Halloween Havoc 1997, which did do better buys than 1996. We'll cruise through the month of November with When Worlds Collide 94, Clash of the Champions 29, World War III 1995, and then World War III 1997. Does anything in particular stand out about this upcoming slate of shows for you, Eric? I think it's going to be interesting to get into the, the personality profile of Scott Hall. That's going to be a great show. I look forward to that. If you've got a question for us, go fire it off on Twitter at 83 weeks. Uh, we're going to get that question up very soon today on Twitter. And we hope to uh, get your questions in time for next week. And we apologize again for the delay this week, but we're looking forward to being back with you this Monday and every Monday right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.